Our primary reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. Would you listen now for the word of the Lord? Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The word of the Lord. So every guy uh, has that kind of shameless, thrifty, lame thing they do to save money that they probably like shouldn't do to save money. Kind of like, you know, do-it-yourself plumbing or wearing underwear with holes still in it uh, or eating food past its expiration date. Uh, I don't do any of those, just to be clear. Um, but I, I do, mine is I get haircuts at the cheapest possible chain store, right? Like different stylist every time. I'm just like always just like rolling the dice with whoever I get. Um, and so recently I was having my most recent Russian roulette stylist and, and uh, she found out I was a pastor and, and so she was like, oh, I, I grew up Catholic. And I said, oh, do you still practice? And she said, oh no, not at all. Just the Catholic guilt part. But this is not to pick on Catholics because we're like in the deep south. So we could just as easily substitute that for Southern Baptist shame, right? And instead of 10 Hail Marys, it's like 10 altar calls and then like two rebaptisms just to know, you know, make sure things stick. Why is this a phenomenon? I think it's because organized institutional religion has historically been fueled less by a fascination with God and more by an indistinguishable but undeniably powerful concoction of guilt and shame. Religious power is most secure when you are personally insecure. So unsurprisingly, the projects of modernity and especially post-modernity really wanted to pendulum swing away from this dynamic, telling people, well, you know, you shouldn't feel shame or guilt at all. It's just a social construct. You can free yourself. And yet, even in nations that have become less and less Christian, the rates of depression And suicide remained just as high, if not higher, than when they were more religious. Not only that, but when you look at the nature of political discourse today, even otherwise non-religious people, particularly on the ideological left, commonly use phrases that have very clear overtones of guilt and shame. Bigot, homophobe, racist, Male privilege, white guilt, phrases like these are anything but morally neutral. And so even without religion, non-religious people use phrases like these in the same way that a religious person would call someone a sinner. What does this mean? 
that while guilt and shame have social dynamics, they are not social constructs, but rather very real components of what it means to be human in a fallen world. It means that we are afraid of these feelings and we weaponize these feelings. This is a story as old as humanity itself. This is a story we see in Genesis. Last week in Genesis 3, we left off with the man and woman both eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the only forbidden tree, because by doing so, they would die. Why did they do it anyway? Well, we suggested that the woman doubted that God was actually good enough to care for her well-being, and so she ate from the tree in order to get the power she thought she needed in order to protect herself and her man. Meanwhile, the man doubts that God is actually powerful enough to save the woman from her now impending death, and so he decides that he would rather die with her than be alone again. Neither trusted in either the goodness or the power of God. So neither obey God. It is the first recorded mutiny. And though the word is not yet used, in effect it is the first act of sin or unjustifiable harm. But then nothing happens the way they expect it. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. The man is expecting to experience death, but instead he still finds himself very much alive. And the woman is expecting to experience a surge of power, but instead all she experiences is a surge of vulnerability. They realize that they are both naked. Now, if you'll remember from two weeks ago, when the man and woman are first created, this is the time that we are told that they are naked. And as a metaphor, nakedness is symbolic of absolute vulnerability. And yet it's not a problem. The Bible says that they were unashamed. Humanity is made to be vulnerable. You and I were made to be invulnerable with one another and with God. And so paired with that radical vulnerability is radical embrace. So that's how everything begins. But when humanity chose to reject trusting God, to decide for themselves what was good and evil, to push God away from God's arms, that radical embrace gave way to estrangement. This is the fruit of sin. Sin is the soil that estrangement grows in. And individual acts of sin only yield more estrangement. So what has happened here? It's all the vulnerability that has always been there. But now with an awareness of the danger that vulnerability brings. And without that safety of that previous embrace, guilt and shame now enter into the human consciousness. You see, from sin flows estrangement, and from estrangement flows guilt and shame. It's an estrangement of our sense of self and is a sense of internal guilt and shame. 
But it doesn't stop there. Let's look at the second half of verse 7. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Not only does sin estrange me from my sense of self, it estranges me from relationships around me. Whereas man and woman once were perfectly vulnerable with one another, now they feel the need to literally and metaphorically cover up in front of the other. There's no longer safety. There's no longer to name our crime. Now as an atheist, Kafka could not name this unseen judge. But in Eden, the unseen judge become seen, that God walks towards Adam and Eve. Now, some of us might be bothered by, in contrast to the magisterial and omniscient God of the first creation story in Genesis 1, God here is portrayed as very anthropomorphic, that is, very human-like. But God's human likeness here is not a commentary on the appearance of God, but rather on the intimacy of God with people. Look at verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? There's a temptation here to read God's questions in this story and imagine God like a scolding parent you know, who's done the naughty thing, the, the kid's done the naughty thing, and, and God's going to get them to fess up. And while it's possible that God wants the man to be voluntarily honest, God's search for the humans is meant to be understood by the original Hebrew storyteller as sincere. God's first thoughts towards us is not accusation, but concern. And yet... When we are estranged from our sense of self and from other people and from God, the glorious presence of God is not something we desire. It's something we fear. God is not something we run towards, but rather run from. Verse 10. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So if sin leads to estrangement, and estrangement leads to guilt and shame, the next part of our downward spiral is that guilt and shame lead to avoidance. We will be tempted to do anything in order to avoid being confronted with the reality of our sin. But here's where I think we need to ask a really interesting hypothetical. What if, instead of hiding from God, instead of avoiding the reality of their sin, what if the first humans had asked God for forgiveness? God, I know you said not to do the thing, but we did the thing, and we're really sorry. It was a bad idea. Can you forgive us? Y'all, if you want to know if you're engaging in human religion or the gospel of Jesus Christ, here's a good diagnostic. When I screw up, when I do something I know doesn't align with truth and goodness and beauty that, that puts harm into the world, is my first impulse to run to God 
or to hide from God. Because religion will make that God out to be that scary parent, that enforcer of rules. That when you do something wrong, your first thought is going to be, oh no, my heavenly parent's going to kill me. But if I'm believing the gospel in my life, instead, when I do something wrong, my first thought will be, oh no, I need my heavenly parent to help me. Again, just ask yourself, how have you always heard this next question in verse 11? He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? How do you hear this? Is God catching them, sticking their hand in the cookie jar on the kitchen counter? Or is God realizing that they've drank something poisonous under the kitchen sink? One is angry and scolding. The other one is alarmed and concerned. Which voice you hear will indicate if you are believing in the God of human religion or the God of the gospel. But we'll never know if the man or woman could have been Forgiven, because they never ask. They never even take responsibility. Verse 12, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, that the serpent deceived me and I ate. The man deflects. He blames God, another person. He points blame in every direction but himself. The woman, on the other hand, at least doesn't blame God or another person. She blames the serpent. You know, that weird thing that exists that's neither a person or God, but still compelling. In other words, the woman metaphorically blames that which is impersonal. She blames the system It's not my fault that that thing set me up to fail. Now, there's a lot of reasons. You can imagine why this is the response of the man and woman when they are found out by God. Maybe they chose avoidance and deflection and blame because they're they're scared of the consequences. They don't want to get in trouble. Maybe they thought apologizing would make them look weak. They don't want to be any more vulnerable than they already are. Maybe they were just proud. They're protecting their egos. But here's the thing. All their responses, all their potential reasons, are really just the inability to detangle, to distinguish the difference between guilt and shame. You see, when we sin, when we commit harm, we either experience guilt or shame, and usually some combination of both. The problem becomes that very often we cannot distinguish the difference. But there is. 
It's this. Guilt says, I've done something wrong. Shame says, there's something wrong about me. Guilt says, I've done something bad. Shame says, who I am is bad. Guilt is action-based. Shame is value-based. And because shame is value-based, it threatens my very sense of self-worth. Feelings of shame have an incredible power to animate my actions and my reasons. Feelings of shame are almost always more powerful than feelings of guilt. In fact, it is very likely that every one of us here at some point has refused to take responsibility for hurting someone. That we falsely have denied our guilt, not because we really believed that we were innocent, but because we couldn't bear the shame. And so, those cascading effects of avoidance, deflection, blaming, and even more sins are all from the same river of shame. Now, human religion wants to leverage that shame in order to get you to admit whatever they think you're guilty of. Because if you feel devalued or you fear being devalued, then maybe you'll admit your guilt. You see, religion spends far less time trying to logically and rationally prove why certain actions are wrong or bad and far more time trying to get you to feel that there's something about you that is wrong or bad. Religion, and now many political ideologies today, maintain their power and control by monopolizing the authority to dispense shame over you and me. But what did God say? that we were never meant to experience at the beginning of Genesis 2. That unlike anxiety, what were we never meant to have as a normal part of the human condition? Shame. What does this practically mean for me then? It means that when I sin, I need to feel guilty. Guilt is the rational understanding that I have caused harm that cannot be justified. Guilt is good. Because when I feel guilty, it should lead me to be able to confess. That is, take responsibility. And then it should lead me to repent. That is a desire for change. But shame is never meant to be a part of the equation. Look at 2 Corinthians 7.10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow, a.k.a. shame, brings death. Friends, please remember this. Guilt comes from God. Shame comes from Satan. Guilt draws me up to salvation Shame sends me down a death spiral. 
And unlike human religion and ideologies, Jesus came to resolve our guilt without resorting to shame. In fact, in our first reading this morning in Colossians 2, the Apostle Paul explains that when Jesus died, the death of Jesus, the last Adam, not only vicariously absorbed our guilt, but also dealt with our shame. Listen to verse 14. He canceled the record of charges against us and took it away by nailing it on a cross. You see, our guilt was objectively forgiven by God through Jesus. And in some ways, this was the easy part. Because unlike guilt, shame cannot be objectively forgiven. Same is social. It's part of the human psyche. It's about human relationships. And so it often isn't so much removed as it is transferred. So how is it transferred off of us? The arrest and execution of Jesus was deeply shameful. Jesus was mocked lied about, abandoned, betrayed, assaulted, stripped, tortured. The shame of Jesus is so much that even our religious iconography can't even bear it. You look at paintings of Jesus on a cross and you almost always see a loincloth. But in reality, Jesus was probably crucified naked. The Roman Empire intentionally executed people, not only with the goal of creating horrific pain, but horrific shame, so that no one would challenge their power and control. On the cross then, Jesus took shame, that feeling we were never meant to have, and vicariously experienced itself in a way that only God could. Christ took the shame off of us. But notice how the cross did not cancel shame as it did with guilt. Because shame is social, it had to go somewhere. But where? It couldn't remain on Christ because Christ deserves all the glory. And it couldn't be taken and put on another person because Christ died for all people. So where did it go? Verse 15. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. The method of death that was meant to create maximum shame could not stop the resurrection of Jesus. Christ had victory over the cross. And so when Jesus has victory over a shameful death, Jesus transferred the shame that he had taken off of us onto the spiritual rulers and authorities. 
Jesus transferred our shame onto the very systems of the world that sought to kill the love of God. And Jesus transferred our shame back. He cast it back onto the very serpent that has tried to shame us from the beginning of time. That's where our shame went. And that's where God intends for it to stay. May you not only be forgiven of your guilt, but may you be freed of your shame. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, and super glad some of the kids are in here to enjoy this because we've got some questions. All right, let's go. How do you know what sins are biblical of God versus man-made or human sin? Yeah, so there's a, uh, this is a big question, right? And yeah. so um, the, the, there's a couple different, I would say, like processes that you do. One, right, um, if the Bible doesn't mention it at all, that's a good, that's a good starting point to be like, oh, I don't know if that's a sin, if it's like nowhere within Scripture. But Scripture also is very contextual, right, in terms of when it says things are, are good or bad. So you have to go into the context, look at, you know, um, for example, the classic one, right, is the Bible says like no tattoos, right? Well, I'm in trouble, right? So... But then when you look at the context of why it says no tattoos, it's actually talking about cultic rituals in the Old Testament where you're tattooing gods like onto your body. And so there's a context to that, which Christians later realized, okay, that's not applicable in our context. So context is important. But the, the big question that I think is always really helpful is that all sin corresponds to harm. There's no such thing as a harmless sin, right? And so when you start talking about sin, you say, well, is this a sin or not? You say, okay, how does it lead to harm? Could this lead to diminishing our flourishing, putting harm into the world or to myself or my relationship with God? And that's a, a good starting point for conversation. And then lastly, looking at the life of Jesus, because Jesus is our lens in which we understand the rest of scripture. And so that's a good place if you're kind of reading the Old Testament going, I don't know about this. Well, take the lens of Jesus over that, and that might help you with that, that conversation. All right, can you talk about God and the guilt that we create in our own minds, like mom guilt? Yeah. Um, so here's a, I think that this sometimes is an issue of conflation, right? When we call things guilt, like so mom guilt, or there's dad guilt too, right? I, I think that actually sometimes is less guilt and more shame. And we've, we've, it's just get the name in our culture, but it's because our culture doesn't know the difference between guilt and shame half the time. And so sometimes when you're thinking about, oh, I feel guilty, pause for a moment and go, is this... A, a rational, like, admonishment of wrongdoing in me? Or is this actually other people's expectations put upon me? Is this judgment that I'm feeling? Is this a sense of lack of self-worth? And if you're feeling those things, then it's probably mom shame or dad shame, and that's something God doesn't want for us. So that's a, it's, it's a, we have to be careful with those words because our culture may not always get it right, and so that's a process that you can do diagnostically to kind of figure out what is guilt and what is shame. I also like what you just said. God doesn't want this for me. So when you're feeling that shame, no, God does not want this for me. All right. And last question. If vulnerability is the antidote to shame, what does that look like in a church setting? Yeah, because, dude, any sort of community, this is messy, right? People blame 
churches, right? But this is, a, this is any sort of group of people, you have this, this problem of there's vulnerability or lack thereof. So the, the antidote is half vulnerability, right? Vulnerability is half the process. But what you also need, right, is radical embrace. So your embrace needs to match your vulnerability. That's how you have healthy community. If you only have one without the other, it doesn't work. And so what churches need to do, or your small group, or your family, or whatever your unit is, right, is being intentional to match that embrace with a person's vulnerability. So if you see someone being vulnerable, if your embrace does not match that, they're going to learn and go, Roger, don't be this vulnerable because I know the embrace will not be matched. And so I think that's our first starting point is being intentional with that embrace matching the vulnerability. That, that's really good. And also, like, I see it in our community group, um, and I would encourage anybody that's not in a community group to get involved and find your place where you feel like you can be vulnerable with those people to get deeper in the community so we can all show up for each other. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are a ton of other questions, Colin, and you can address them on Facebook Live and Instagram. Awesome. Thanks, Sam.